We just got done recording with Blake Kidwell, um, the owner of Title Boxing Club in Sacramento. And I easily, like, hands down, we could have talked to him for, like, three more hours at oh, least. Sure. Just just yeah. with, like, his story. It's amazing. Like, you guys, you will, you will love it. It's amazing. Just, I don't even know where to start because... Yeah. <laughs> it it was just you just have to listen to his story from where he started to like where he is now and um it's crazy he was homeless at one point and um just he went through so much stuff and just you know having him i can only imagine that he's like such a completely different person now um right you know i mean this is the first time i've met him but like i can't imagine who he was back then and now it's like the transformation is crazy yeah, when you see anybody who knows him knows that he's a successful businessman. He has a beautiful right. family. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just, he's, you know, loved by all these people that go to his boxing club. You know, this, yeah. this really tight community that's over there at Title. And it's one of those situations where, you know, obviously going into this interview, we had him on because I knew a little bit about his story and I wanted him to mm-hmm. delve more into that. But if, like, if we met him and we didn't know that story, I would have no idea. It's one of those situations where you just have no idea what people have gone through or what people are currently going through because mm-hmm. sometimes the way they are currently is not how they were, you know, previously, like, like he shares yeah. in his story. And it's just such a crazy thing. And like you said, the, uh, the 180 that it must have, you know, the 180 transformation that took place must have just been wild. But yeah, yeah the stuff he said in his story was just really, really powerful, really incredible. And I think, whether you're a coach, athlete, parent, teacher, whatever your, your area of life is, I think you'll find a lot of benefit from this, whether it's for you specifically and the things that you're dealing with in life, or maybe you know someone that's dealing with some of the same challenges and struggles that Blake went through. Right. Whatever the case may be, this is going to be a really beneficial episode and easily one of my favorites that we've done in yeah. 2020. I also believe it's a really important one for this year of 2020 with so much, you know, gone wrong. This is a one that if you're looking for a little story of hope and resiliency, this is the one that's going to get you through, I think. So uh, without further ado, here is Blake Kidwell. See you. Now it is time. Now it is time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Character Combine. Character Combine. Yeah, you ready? Yeah, you ready? When he goes beyond the scoreboard, the scoreboard coaches, coaches, I want you to have the type of voice, type of voice your athletes will hear decades later and still recognize the leadership welcome to the character combine podcast i'm josh takimoto and i am deb mccollum and today's guest is the owner of title boxing in sacramento blake kidwell what's going on man What's up, you guys? Hi, glad to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the the owner title. I usually don't call myself owner. Oh, what do you normally uh, call yourself? Because I mean, dude, I just work there. I just okay. work there. I try and <laughs> I, I try and uh, you know as much as I can keep a humble attitude. Um, and you know, I like to. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I guess. Okay. Perfect. Well, I like that. That's a, that's a great way to start the podcast. We got someone yeah. who's, uh, who's humble and as, as successful as you are. That's a, that's a good way to start for sure. Um, just so everybody knows, we've been trying to make this one happen for a while. Um, so I'm really, I'm really excited to be talking to you, man. And, um, you know, some scheduling issues at first and then 
unfortunately, COVID also got us. When COVID, when the shutdown really first started, uh, I think it was the day of our interview with you. And that oh, was yeah. back in March. And it's like, dang, this, is, this isn't going to work. And we, we just stayed persistent. Yeah. We finally got it done. So uh, we're glad to have you, man. Um, yeah, Deb excellent. likes to start, start our guests off with some warm-up questions. So this is the, this is the real hard-hitting stuff. So I hope you're ready. <laughs> he looks ready. I'm sweating already. <laughs> well, normally only one of them is meant to be difficult, but for some reason, sometimes I make all three of them difficult. So we'll see how okay. it goes. I'm sure you'll be fine though. Okay. So the first one is, um, I like asking this one. I think I asked this one recently with one of our guests. If you could pick a famous person to portray you in a movie, who would it be? That's always my favorite. Um, yeah. It's a great question. And you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to out myself here a little bit with a secret uh, liking of someone that you might not expect. Right. And this person actually, anyway, um, also depends on, you know, the time of my life that they're going to portray. We're talking about younger years. Anyway, you guys, I'm a big Justin Bieber fan. Oh, and I know. All right. The beans. Listen, I, I know he's a musician, but he's extremely talented. The guy skateboards and boxes and, and he sings and he does all this amazing stuff. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the Beebs. Go with the Beebs. That is awesome. Look That's how excited. He was so excited to say that too. He was like, oh, super excited. <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. Not expecting that at all. And I, I, I don't, like I said, we've never like really met in person, but based on what I've seen when we follow you on Instagram, you're a pretty big dude. So he's going to have to hit the weights a little bit if he wants to play you in a movie. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. And there's probably not also very many guys, 6'3", 230 pounds, saying that they love Justin Bieber. So, <laughs> right. you know, and then there's there that. There we go. <laughs> that's how, that's that's how we know Blake's super confident because he was willing to say that. I appreciate it. Yeah. That. That's a great answer. That, that was an awesome first answer, by the way. <laughs> All right. Second question. Um, name three things that is on your bucket list. Oh, it's a different one. If, it is, I've never asked that one before. On your bucket list. Um, man, that's a tough one. You know, I've been really, really blessed these last several years and I've got to do some, some cool things. And then even in my younger years was able to do some things that I would have said would be kind of bucket list items. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one's kind of tough. Um, you know, there's definitely, I've never been to Europe. Um, okay. So going to Europe would be something that, that absolutely is on my bucket list. I'd love to be able to explore. Um, you know, actually, I, I had a fondness in high school and I actually took French as my language. And so, uh, you know, um, visiting France would be something cool for me. I think Germany is a little part of my my culture and my heritage. And I'd love to check out different parts of Europe. So um, so definitely traveling and seeing Europe is going to be one of them. Um, uh, that's the second one. And believe it or not, guys, this might be a surprising one is that I've been to uh, a professional UFC fight, but I've actually never been to like a big pro boxing event. Oh, and okay. uh, I think that would be something awesome that I would love to do. Like, you know, the, like a, I'm talking like a Mayweather-esque Manny Pacquiao, you know, right, like a big, right. a big fight. That'd be cool. Um, so hopefully some, hopefully someday I can afford one of those tickets. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, 
and then the third thing, um, you know, my wife and I are working through some renovating of our home. And one of the things that's really important to us as a family, excuse me, is um, having a home that, uh, that, that we're proud of, right? And that we can raise children in and that has space where our kids actually want to hang out here. Um, and so I think, you know, a bucket list item is just, it's a simple goal, right? But it's just having a, a place to call my own, something that, that we are proud of. And, and, you know, I'd love to have a basketball court. I'd love to have a gym. And so, you know, I want to dream yeah. big and just put those things out in the universe. So I think that's, I don't know that that's a typical bucket list type goal, but it's something that's on my heart and my mind and, and figured I'd throw it out there. That's great. That's, that's a great that's list. What, well, and that's what a bucket list is, right? It's like, it looks different for everybody. It's whatever's on your heart. It's not like a typical, it can't, it doesn't have to be a typical go skydiving, go, you know, uh, yeah. climb the, you know, go see the Grand Canyon or climb Mount Everest or yeah. whatever. So I, that's great. Yeah. Those are good answers. Thank you for that question. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. That's now good. you, now you have it. Yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> the question's kind of messed up though. I was three. He had to give three answers for that. So I know. I don't know I why. I blindsided him, but he handled it. I don't. Camp. I just that I just wrote it down. I don't know why I said three, but he did it. Okay, there the last go. the last one. I, I ask every guest this. Um, I love music. I think music speaks to people in so many different ways and can help you just express whatever it is you're feeling and can help you through tough times and and what have you. So if you could pick a song that's already like out there recorded in the world that you could kind of call your life song, like something that depicts maybe where you are in your life right now, or maybe in general, your life in like totality, what song would you pick? I call it a life song. What is your life song? Oh man, that's such a tough one because I'm sure, you know, if you're a music lover that, um, you know, songs have this incredible ability and this power to sort of draw you in to different mm -hmm. parts of your life, mm -hmm. right? And you can hear a song and remember where you were when you heard it. And so I, it's, a it's a tough question for me, but I'll give you a, maybe a broader answer. You know, in my youth, I grew up with a, a dad that was, um, you know, big on just classic rock and roll. So I have a lot of fond memories of listening to bands like ZZ Top and Led Zeppelin and ACDC and some of these classics. And I remember even, you know, first kind of weight training with my dad. And like, I have fond memories of that in my youth. And then I also have some really kind of powerful memories of first feeling a connection to just worship music because I wasn't raised in the church. And so I didn't really spend any time understanding what it even meant to worship. And so when I first, you know, my wife, right, was a, a, a worship singer and a leader for a, a long time and actually still is today. And so I remember when I first started being exposed to church and listening to some worship music, really feeling a, a pretty cool and powerful connection. And then, you know, as far as, you know, kind of the daily, I think I listen to a lot of hip hop music, both classic and even modern. So it's, it's tough to really, it's a, that, that is probably the hardest question, Deb, to put your finger on a song yeah. A single song that describes the life. But I think, you know, I'm, I li listen to a little bit of everything. The only thing I don't listen to a lot of is I, I just don't do the country music thing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I, I just can't get into it. You know? Hey, man, I'm with you. I can't do it either. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a hip hop guy for sure. Can't do the country. 
Man. I'm sorry to any of your listeners that are country fans because, yeah, I'm sorry. Hopefully you can get past that. We got some good <laughs> stuff coming. Hey, they're pretty <laughs> mentally tough. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. We've, <laughs> okay. said, we've, said, we've said worse. <laughs> it's okay. We, all lost, right. we lost all three of our listeners now. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> my, my wife might still listen. Depends on the day. All right. <laughs> hey, man, you survived the warm-up questions. That was well good. Woo. Good so, job. Uh, cool. So, hey, man, we just want to start. So, you know, our, our main audience is high school coaches and athletes. And so we always like to start people off, our guests off with this first question. That is, you know, what is your athletic background? But, you know, I kind of want to let you walk into your story because um, you have a pretty unique and interesting story where there's a lot of um, obstacles and struggle that you went through. So uh, I just want you to kind of put all that together. You can start us off with your athletic background and then kind of just work your way into yeah. how you got to where you're at now. You know, listen, the, my athletic background is a, a critical part of my story and who I am and how I got to where I ended up. So it's it's a relevant question. Um, I have always been, I think since since I was very young and, and my family's told me this, I've always been sort of hyper competitive is the way that I describe it. And, um, and have really always my mom said at a very young age, have been very mindful of how I performed at certain things, right? Even simple things. Um, I was very like, you know, aware, right? Of how people were judging and viewing. And, and, and so the only reason I say that is because my dad got me into, of all sports, the first sport that I really played competitively was, was football. And I remember that uh, I, I, I played first for the Del Campo Junior Cougars. And as a junior peewee football, we were like seven years old, just little guys. We looked like bobbleheads out there. And um, my dad could clearly see um, that I was a little bit different some, than some of the other kids in, in terms of how I performed. So he pulled me out of that program and actually put me into Folsom um, Folsom Junior Bulldogs because the Folsom program just had a really, really sharp program. So just fast forward, just so I don't spend forever. I played for that team for seven years, all the way up until before high school. We won four state championships and and actually three of the years that um, I played there, we didn't lose a game. Um, wow. In fact, my first two seasons, no one even scored on us. So, um, and, and so one of the things I think it's important to hit on, you know, throughout that process was, um, I developed such an, in, in a, a crazy understanding and a fondness of the camaraderie that we developed amongst this group of guys. Um, and still some of these guys I'm still connected to today that we still chat and message each other. And, you know, some of the some of the fondest memories I have are, are really youth football and youth athletics period. So um, I always I actually started both ways. I was a running back and I played linebacker and then all the way up until high school. What happened when I got to high school was that I was one of the few kids before high school that had even played football before. Right. Because a lot of kids, depending on where you're from, you know, a lot of kids don't play football before they get to high school mm -hmm. and going to Rio Americano. You know, that's a school that is like water polo, soccer, basketball, right? They're just a different tennis, right? We had a great tennis team. So not a lot of football players went there. So what happened is that I had an IQ and understanding of the game more than anyone else. So my coach groomed me to play quarterback. So 
um, started and transitioned partially through my freshman season, really learning how to throw the football and how to lead a team. And so I played, you know, played, played quarterback all throughout my, my high school football time. Now, during that time, I also played a lot of basketball. So my athletic background is I love the sport of basketball. Amazing. Um, and then going to Rio, I actually picked up golf and ended up being, you know, pretty decent at, at playing golf. I'm, I'm like a seven handicap and, uh, and it's one of my other, and I'm so glad that I picked it up at such a young age. Cause I have some friends in their late thirties, you know, trying to pick up the game of golf and like, they suck. It's not even fun playing with them. Uh, That's awesome. So, um, so anyway, I think I think that you know the reason that that U Sports is such a, a fond part of my story is because um, it provided a structure for me um, as a kid and all throughout school. That um, when I was in the, when when I was involved in a team sport and school, um, I was able to stay really focused and I got good grades and you know all the sort of norm, normal things that come from like being engaged with school. And so, you know, just to get a little bit into my story is that, um, you know, so I, I'm an alcoholic, right? I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, this January, uh, I will be celebrating 12 years um, clean and sober. Wow. And nice. the reason that I say, you know, identify as an alcoholic and, and maybe some people that listen to this might have a different understanding or perspective of what that actually means. But I, I want to start off by saying, you know, I had a loving family. Um, you know, I didn't really have any, any physical abuse. You know, I didn't, um, my parents cared for me, even though they were separated. Um, no real trauma, um, you know, that I, that I dealt with as the youth. And the, and the only reason I say that you guys is because um, sometimes that can be the perception of that alcoholics are these people that turn to drugs and alcohol because of some traumatic circumstance. And I just like to say that because there's a lot of people like me that grew up in loving homes that, you know, have relatively healthy families. I mean, we all have a little bit of dysfunction in our families, but, you know, for the most part, I was loved. I was cared for. I had shelter. I was, you know, I, I had a great life a, as a kid. And, and I just want to say that because I don't want to turn anybody away that might feel like, well, they don't connect to that or that isn't me. Um, and so I just, I think that's important to say. Um, so, you know, I, I think that my drinking, um, started, you know, what was normal to me and what I've heard other people share with, I started drinking in my later high school years. Um, and it was kind of the Friday night thing after the football game, you would find someone to, you know, house to go to. And generally there was alcohol there. And, um, and what I can say about, you know, what I remember being very young was that I remember my, my friend's mom was out of town. I remember exactly where we were. It was actually right up the street from me and his parents were out of town. We were standing in his kitchen with about five of us and we had this cheap, you know, bottle of vodka that was being passed around. And I, you know, it got to my turn to sort of take a drink and I, and I took a, a chug, you know, I mean, it was, I don't know how to describe it other than I immediately recognized that I drank differently than my peers. Um, and I know that sounds weird at 16, 15, 16 years old, but I just sort of knew that like, you know, one, I, I liked the effect that it produced. And so, 
I, you know, again, I think my drinking started off in kind of a normal way that kids experiment with alcohol. Um, and what I will say is that if I had to kind of give you guys a really simple progression, um, of how it worked for me, it was fun, fun with problems and then just problems. Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense, but, but, but that, that was really the progression for me. And so, um, you know, just to kind of get into it, because I do want to give you guys the ability to ask some questions and us to go a little bit deeper. But, you know, the result of that um, and that my continued, um, you know, drug and alcohol use throughout high school and beyond high school was that, you know, by the time I was 23, I was homeless. Um, I'd had two DUIs, two hit and runs. I'd been in jail like seven or eight times. Um I had, you know, no driver's license. I had lost all of my belongings. I had gotten to a place where my mom, you know, told me that I, I couldn't come home. I couldn't stay at her home. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of burned it all to the ground. I, in fact, was, in a, was, was living in a homeless shelter and had been there for some time. Um, and, uh, and so that was the, the progression. In fact, um, a, a, another big piece of that was that I found myself, um, I basically became an IV drug user, right? So, you know, going from alcohol as my primary sort of outlet to um, full-on IV drug user using multiple times all day throughout the day, every day, um, was really where I ended up. Um, Before I came back to Sacramento, um, I was living in San Diego and I had a job at a restaurant in Fashion Valley, San Diego. And so what that meant was I worked my restaurant shift to take my tip money. And then I would take the light rail to Tijuana. And I would go to Mexico three to four times a week to bring, to get drugs and to bring them back to the border. And so that was like, this was my life. This was pre, right before the, the really the bottom fell out. And so, um, you know, it, there's a lot of other sort of gory details in there we don't need to go into, but you guys understand that the progression was slow and subtle. And I think, you know, the reason I explained team sports is because when I had this structure and this environment, when I was involved with the team, I generally stayed on track. And I think when things started to get really loose was after college, right? Once I graduated from college, 21 years old, don't really know what's next. Don't really have a structure. I don't have a class schedule. I'm not in an, a sporting team where I've got to show up for practice. Um, I think that was just sort of the unraveling. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the summary, man. It's, it was a pretty um, intense, you know, sometimes thinking about it now with the way that life is today, it, it feels sometimes like a dream. Yeah. Um, I actually, I regularly visit the homeless shelter um, that I stayed on A Street. It's called Aid in Kind. It's a men's shelter. It houses about 60 men year round. Um, and I go there frequently to donate clothes and shoes, sometimes just go and talk to the guys and, you know, people are hanging out there. Uh, sometimes I just like to try to connect with them and figure out what's on their mind. And, you know, guys, one of the most valuable experiences that I learned in, in being homeless was that it's not what you think it is. Um, yes, there's absolutely alcoholic drug addicts down there that have just burned their life to the ground. 
Um, but you would be surprised. Uh, and there's absolutely some mental health stuff going on there as well. But you would be surprised, especially now and even during that time, some people just have an insanely bad, you know, I don't even know how to explain it. They get a divorce, they lose their job, they lose their home, and now they don't have any family and they're going, I don't even really know how this happened, right? So anyway, it was really eye-opening to me. I actually don't know if you remember. You remember when when they, when they Pastor Cole did Rev on the Streets? Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so I went out with him and and slept in the street with him a few nights with Jacoby Shaddix. We yeah we 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 you know pitched up behind you know he he wanted to experience right and obviously raise money and bring awareness to the issues there. Um, and then you know Winter Sanctuary obviously was was important. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think he learned and had some of those same experiences that were wow these people are really the, the people that, um, you know, that Jesus would minister to, right? If we, if we had to look at the church, right, the early church. So anyways, just, just um, really, you know, really crazy time. I don't know. Um, I, I've got a lot more to talk, but I don't know if you guys have any questions that are running out. Just if this can be, if you want it to be a conversation. Um, maybe you don't and you want me to keep going because I can keep going too. Oh, we can I definitely mean, let you keep going, but I also have yeah. like a million questions too. I'm sure you do too, Deb. <laughs> we always uh, have questions. <laughs> a ton of questions. I mean, there's a lot, a lot that you said there. Uh, well, let me ask you this, since it's kind of just fresh on my mind. When you went out there with, uh, with Pastor Rick, um, what kind of, was that an emotional thing for you to kind of get back to being on the streets? Obviously in a much different way, but you're still in the same, you know, some of those same places that you were, you know, back in the day. Was that a weird thing for you? Yeah, you know, um, I, you know, look, I remember it very clearly. I remember where we were meeting um, as I was connecting with Pastor Rick. And um, I remember, you know, I packed a little backpack and just had some snacks and, you know, ba ba really basic stuff in, in my backpack. And we were, I was walking down 16th Street towards sort of ABCD, right, like towards the um, towards A Street area. And um, and I was just walking by myself and it was nighttime. I was getting ready to meet with them. And as you get further down, right, the closer you get to A Street, the sort of rougher it gets, right? Like right. you really start to notice you're transitioning to a little different area and, and things start to get a little weird. So there was absolutely um, a period walking down that street where I got emotional and had memories of, you know, there's a, it's not there anymore, but there was a liquor store on A Street I used to go to right every day and so walking by that or excuse me on 16th um so walk you know walking by that at night and seeing people around you know panhandling was yeah it was absolutely it was an interesting feeling um yeah yeah it was it was for sure emotional yep no oh, i bet i can't i can't even imagine oh yeah um how long in the i'm probably jumping ahead but how long were you homeless for so I was in the shelter at Aiden Kind for about six months, and then I was on the street for about six months. So it was about a year, wow. um, basically all of the, all of 2008. Um, mm. I didn't find uh, a recovery program to sort of start my journey. Um, my sobriety date is January 7th of 2009. So pretty much wow. all of 2008. Um, 
and, and you know, 2008 was really an interesting time too. This is, and maybe that was part of why I was experiencing so many people that had lost their homes and had experienced mm-hmm. h- hardship. I mean, yeah. there was a lot of stuff going on in 2008, right? It was a, mm-hmm. uh, a really difficult recession for our economy. So um, mm-hmm. I definitely experienced some of those people that were like, you know, guys that had lost their home and their wives left them. And it was like, it was, it was crazy. It was a weird, you know, interesting time. Oh, oh I bet. Oh. Yeah. You know, something uh, I was, before we got on the air here uh, on the, on the podcast, I, looked at looked online at some of the different interviews you've done and some of the things you've shared about your story. And one of the things that kind of caught my attention was the fact that you've mentioned the fact that we need help sometimes, like we need help from other people. And so, you know, obviously since we do talk to a lot of athletes on this podcast, I feel like sometimes, and maybe I'm speaking, I think I'm speaking to any athlete, but maybe specifically male athletes. Sometimes the idea of needing help is tough because there's a lot of pride and ego when you're competing. Right. And so that tends to ha- have the ability to translate into other areas of life as well. So I imagine you being a former athlete, probably someone who has a lot of pride, when you got to that point in your journey where you needed help, was that a, was that a really difficult thing for you to ask for? Or were you at a point where you said, okay, I, just, I have no other choices? Look, that's a, a really good and well thought out question. And I think that um, I can answer it in two ways. By the time I had gotten to the end, I was ready and willing to receive anything, right? I mean, I had, I had continued to make decisions that allowed me to dig a deeper bottom because of exactly what you just mentioned, right? What got me to, to, the reason it got so bad for me is because I was unwilling or thought I had things under control along the way. And I kept moving the scale of the bottom down because, well, I'm a, I'm a good athlete. I'm a college graduate. I'm a smart guy. I can figure this out. Right. Like this sort of, okay, just once I get through this thing, then it's going to be okay. Or this one last time I'm going to be okay. Once I get through this. And I think, I think definitely that mentality, you know, maybe there was a little bit of, I was just naive um, and really not understanding how far gone I was. But I think that by the time I got to the end, um, I, I actually made the call to a friend um, that I, I, I knew in San Diego. And I knew that this friend had gotten sober. And um, I called him and I said, um, I, I think what I said word for word was, I think I'm going to die. And I don't, I don't, I'm, I'll do whatever you say, like, I don't know what to do. I need help. Um, and, and I, and I remember saying that to him, his name is Lance McDonald and uh, he's not with us anymore. He passed away. He was an older gentleman, hmm. but he, um, yeah, I had this like overwhelming, overwhelming sensation. I would wake up every morning with the most insane anxiety that I don't even know how hmm. to describe. It was like this, it was like waking up in a panic attack every day. And I remember that the last day that finally just kind of broke me was that I just, I woke up um, filled with fear, filled with anxiety, completely empty. Um, and, and I made that call and asked for help. And um, I'm sure in the moment it was hard. I mean, looking back on it, I feel like it's easy for me to say it was easy because I had no other choices, but um, you know, but, but that was the start. That was the start of the recovery for me. 
Yeah. What's well, oh. man, something like just you kind of walking through that whole mentality just made it like made it really it's an interesting um battle, right? So in your situation, like there's the you know, we see it every day on Instagram, right? We've posted a lot of that stuff where it's like, as an athlete, you got to like shoulder the burden, you know, keep pushing, keep grinding. And it makes it seem like if we just keep pushing, we can make it on our own. And then there's this other side that you're talking about where it's like, you have to have help from some people if you want to like be the best version of yourself. But in your story, there's like this battle between the two things. And it's like this, you know, tug of war. And it's like, which side's going to, you know, win out at the end of the day. So, um, you know, I think that's a really good thing for athletes or any even coaches or just people in general to hear that you know like yeah those are both good things and they can get you to where you're trying to go but if you let it go too far one way or the other you know it's gonna it's gonna be problematic sure yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely and i and it's and it's you know interesting too is that there was this level of you know i guess unwillingness to kind of get help and or maybe i was afraid or i didn't know what to do um but I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about some of my early coaches and, um, you know, specifically, um, you know, Coach LaSalle was one of my early coaches at Folsom. And um, I remember the feedback that I got from coaches and what they loved about me so much is that I, I was coachable, right? Mm-hmm. And that I would listen to their suggestions and that I would follow direction um, and you know, some kids, and, and I think part of that is that, you know, I was never, ever the most talented athlete, never, um, was never the fastest, was never the strongest, was never the biggest. Um, but I always performed at the top level because I worked hard and I was coachable. So it's, it's interesting, you know, that, that did translate to me in sports, but I guess in my, you know, the, again, the further I got away from that. Um, you know, I guess the more these maybe, maybe bad habits creep in. Hmm. Wow. So I'm here. I just, I want to hear more of your story. I feel like I'm listening to an audiobook. So what, okay. So what happens next? If I, sorry, if I'm jumping ahead, Josh, if you have a question no, before good. that, but okay. So what, what happens next? You reach out for help and, um, you know, you have that moment and where you're like, no, I need to do this. So what's, what's the next, I guess, series of events that happens for you? Yeah. That? Yeah. Super interesting. Um, get ready. Uh, <laughs> the, so what happened next was that, you know, my family and my mom made it very clear that um, unless um, I was seeking help, that, you know, it, they made it very clear that like, don't ask for money. We're not going to help you with money. Like if you need a ride somewhere and there's a good reason that we're taking you there, we'll take you there. But like they knew my mom started going to Al-Anon meetings and, you know, had an understanding of what it meant to two things. One, enable, right. And support me in doing something that, that she shouldn't be. I'm a grown man, right. There's, there's no reason that my mom should be doing certain things for me at 23, 24 years old. And my mom also really understood and, and set some very clear boundaries with me and felt very strongly about this idea that the more she does for me, um, the more things she does for me that I should be doing on my own, the more she is robbing me of my dignity. Mm-hmm. So um, she explained that to me as I got sober and it really hit home with me. It really made me understand 
why she said no to certain things, because these are things that as a man I should be doing for myself and her doing them for me is taking away that opportunity for me to be a man. So, um, so the whole point in saying that is that I called my mom and, uh, oh, sorry. I called my guy in San Diego and he said, well, Hey, I know of this place might not be the place for you, but I know of a place that I think will take you and they will take you with no money. Cause I didn't have any money. And, um, and this place was in Los Angeles and the place was a basically a county, really a county funded, um, and, uh, donation, right. Donation based and County funded, um, drug and alcohol program, but they were really centered around, um, the LGBT community, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, in this particular place, um, there were all walks of life, right? We were about, there was about 20 of us um, and really everything that you can imagine, extremely diverse, um, some really successful people that had ended up there. And then, you know, you have some people like me that were homeless that were coming off of the street. So it was this very unique mix of people. And so anyway, long story short, he says, I know of this place, here, I'm going to give you the number. You're just going to need to call them between 10 and two. And you're going to see if they've got a, a bed available for you. And so I called the first day. They ask you some questions. And then they tell you that you got to call every day between 10 and two and check in. And if they have a bed available, they'll let you know. And so I think there's this a willingness exercise here that they're trying to understand, right? Like, is this person really want it? Are they going to call me every day? Do they really need it? And so uh, I called every day. Um, they also told me to stay sober, which I didn't do. Um, but I called every day. And, uh, and it was about the eighth day that, uh, that they had a bed available for me. So at that point, I called my mom. And I said, Mom, there's a program that's available to me. It's in Los Angeles. They have a bed available. They asked me how soon I can get there. And so... Um, she met me at what used to be the Greyhound bus station on L or I it used to be on the corner of like seventh and seventh and L right. It used to be right. like down under below K street. There used mm -hmm. to be a Greyhound bus station there and she bought me a bus ticket and she waited there for me, uh, waited with me till I got on the bus. And then she gave me exactly $3 and 25 cents which was the bus fare I needed for when I got there to get me to the house. And um, so I, I took that bus and it was, um, it was difficult. I was sick. I was, I was, I was drug sick. I was alcohol sick. I was, I was in bad shape. I was probably 160 pounds. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm 70 pounds heavier than that right now. So it's crazy. To give you some perspective. Crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 um, I had visible, um, sores, uh, sores on my face, sores on my arms. I had an abscess on my arm from IV drug use. I, um, I was very sick. I was very, very sick. And so I got to downtown Los Angeles at one o'clock in the morning and I waited uh, for several hours until the normal 5.30 a.m. whatever bus. And that 5.30 bus uh, dropped me off at the corner of um, 
Vaness and oh, man, I'm not going to remember the other cross street now. Anyway, drop me off at the corner where this this house was, and I remember as I was walking up to my house with my backpack, I remember that the uh, the residents from the house were were headed out on their morning walk, and so they would walk out of the house and walk around. You know, they did this big walk around the block and come down. And it's actually the house is right at the base of the Hollywood Hills. And so um, anyway, I remember walking up and just I'm sure this look on my face was just utter defeat. And I remember seeing these faces kind of all looking at me as I was coming in. And uh, that was really the, the start of this program. And, um, you know, Deb, it's a great question because that um, that house, you know, forever forever changed my life. I, um, I went there to learn how to not drink or use drugs. And, um, what I got was so much more that I would have never been able to just, I would have never been able to dream of, of what I'd hoped. In fact, I think I initially probably went there to just learn how to drink normal, right. For whatever that looks like. Like, I think I, you know, selfishly i'm like don't want to let go of this thing that i still have memories of it being fun even though like look at me i've just completely wrecked my whole life and so that's part of the sickness of alcoholism that's so interesting to me is that even in spite of right um in spite of the horrible destruction it does to people we still fantasize about the things that are good or why we like this thing i mean you can look at a lot of things like that right gambling and even eating and you know, there's all sorts of things that can be extremely destructive if they're taken to an extreme. So, Mm -hmm. so anyway, um, you know, this, this program was pretty, was pretty crazy and was very structured. Um, you know, we had things to do every day. We had group every morning. Um, we had daily chores. We would rotate through and actually prepare. Uh, you know, if you were on kitchen duty that night, you would be the one preparing dinner for the entire house about 25 to 30 people you're feeding in the house. So, um, you know, I learned and I I, I talked earlier about, you know, these things that build self-esteem. And I remember someone early on telling me, like, do do you know how to build self-esteem? And I said, no, how? And I said, well, you, you do esteemable acts. You do things that make you feel good. And, and so what I learned throughout this process was, um, getting up every morning and making my bed, keeping a clean space, um, laundry, you know, laundering and wearing clean clothing. Um, as small as those things are, you start to sort of pile these things up, right? And, um, and eventually you start to build a little bit of self-esteem, even preparing food for 30 people, right? Like there's something to be said about what that does to the psyche um, and really getting out of self. Um, you know, cleaning, right? Learning how to clean and do chores and, and, and keep a clean living space. Um, so in the moment, it's funny because I reflect on these things very positively, but in the moment, these things seem stupid, right? Like, oh, I got written up because I didn't make my bed. Like, you know, you, you don't understand the method to the madness when you're in it. Um, and I think, you know, actually it's funny because I think if we're thinking about sports and athletes, there's a lot of parallels there, right? Like, we don't understand why coaches ask us to do things many times yeah. until we get to that moment and go, 
oh, that's why he made me do that a thousand times, right? Right, like, right. Um, <laughs> so true. So, you know, so true. Um, so through this program, um, basically between 60 and 90 days into the program, you start working on job and life skills and simple things like, you know, creating a resume and learning how to type and um, calling like calling past employers to obtain job references, hmm. like things that we overlook. And mind you, all walks of life in this house, right? So some people, I, I was a college graduate, so I ripped through that section. I understood very clearly how to do all of those things. But you have some people that have never, ever done that before, ever. Right. Right. This is their first time ever even working or ever having to call someone and say, I'm trying to, you know, and in some cases very humbly saying, I'm trying to get back on my feet. I haven't worked in years. You're my last reference. I'm asking, you know, I'm humbly asking if you would provide me with a reference so that I can try and gain employment. And that was part of the program. So very intentional with how the program was outlined. And I remember my first job. Well, so the idea was you would go out for the whole day. They'd give you bus money and you turn in resumes, you know, they'd send you to an area of town and you'd have to just, you know, turn in resumes everywhere. And, um, and I, and the idea was that you had to, whatever job you got, you just had to take it, right? It didn't matter. You just have to take it. It doesn't matter if it's McDonald's, whatever, like you're getting work, you're just going to take it. And, um, so I was lucky. The first job I got was actually at Macy's. Um, and I worked in the men's formal wear. So I got to wear a suit, um, to work every day and everybody in the house like was, you know, not jealous. Well, kind of jealous. Right. But like, Oh, there goes Blake in his suit, you know, sure enough, the pretty boy, pretty white boy gets his job at Macy's, you know, and they, they love to sort of rip me apart for that. Sure. And, um, what happened was you're going to laugh at this because this is how, I don't know if you believe in karma or just energy of the universe, but, um, I was starting to think I was kind of cool too. Right. Like, you know, building my ego up a little bit. And, uh, Four weeks into that job, um, my my background check came back, and so they had actually hired me before they got the background check because they just made an assumption that you know well, I was fine. And um, uh, long story short, when I was drinking and using in San Diego, I had attempted to steal a pair of jeans in a drunken blackout. I don't even remember it. I attempted to steal from Bloomingdale's, which is Bloomingdale's and Macy's are the same company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, this background check came back that I had theft on my record from a Bloomingdale store. So they fired me uh, right there on the spot. So you got, I had to walk back to the house with my tail between my legs and, <sighs> uh, and I lost my, I lost my little job. So, um, so yeah, that was really the process, Deb. It was, it was, you know, that started my journey and little by little, um, you know, I, I, I like to say like a simple thing that they, that, that I learned there was, you know, when in doubt, just do the next right thing. Like, you know, sometimes if you're overwhelmed with all the things you have to do, you just got to start checking stuff off the list. So like these little things, you know, these little simple things that I had to go through in order to, to, to get through it. Um, I, uh, so, so six months I had completed the program and, um, I left the house 
I had a job that I had been employed at for several months up to that point. I was working at a small clothing store, a little retailer, and um, it was actually on Hollywood Boulevard, but he also owned some stores on Melrose. And I had this, uh, I moved into a pay-by-the-day motel on Sunset and Bronson, and it was on top of a bar. And my window was right outside the smoking patio. I paid $700 a month in cash. And that was how, that was the first place that I live outside of treatment. And I actually got that, I got that tattooed on my arm. Oh yeah. That's cool. So, um, and the, the date that I got sober because it was just a pretty, a pretty important part of my life. And what's so funny about that is, um, I remember, uh, just being, actually insanely happy. Like I was six months sober. I had a little job. I had a little place to call my own. I had a skateboard and that was how I got to and from work and to and from Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I had just this really simple routine and, um, and I was proud of, of what I'd accomplished up to that point. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was wild, super wild. Oh yeah. Well, that's an, that's just an incredible, incredible journey, um, from, from start to finish. But so, you know, something I'm interested in is, so obviously you finish the program and then eventually you come back here to Sacramento and something, and Deb, you, Deb, you as a teacher, I think we would mm-hmm. get this for sure, but sometimes with student athletes or just people in general, right. When there's a, a matter of trust, it's not like you can break someone's trust and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you make a change and then that trust is completely restored, right? There's a process in that and it has to be, you have to show some, I guess, examples of why you're trustworthy again. So what was it like going back to your family, to your friends that knew you before the program and how long did that did it take to build that trust back up with them? Man, awesome question and, and segued me nicely into you know, something I'm, I'm glad I, I didn't miss because, you know, there's an important process that most of us alcoholics that find recovery go through. And I'm sure you, you've maybe heard of the 12 steps. I don't know if you've ever heard of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but, um, you know, at the time that the literature was written, um, I think it was a time in our country's history when there were many people of faith. I think Christianity was, you know, was, and even Catholicism, right, was, was, it was probably more prevalent, right, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right, than, than it is today, um, or at least maybe more more spoken about. At least that's that's my experience um, or my my understanding. And so, and the re- the reason I say that is because some people that maybe don't understand um, what the 12 steps are or what they are designed to do. Um, just might have a weird perception of like, oh, it's this weird cult, right? And they've got these weird things on the wall and you got to follow these steps and then you're going to ride on the moon, right? Like, I, I don't know, but I, I've heard, you know, I know that some people have some interesting thoughts around what, what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And mm-hmm. I want to really carefully describe it because I think it, it transitions to um, your question really nicely, which is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous provided guide a, a, a guide for me um, that allowed me not only to clearly understand and identify my problem to even be able to articulate and understand the reasons behind why I did the things that I did 
to the next process, which is understanding that, guess what? Like, I can't fix this thing on my own, right? Like, I can't go it alone. We need help in this world, right? So if we we're looking at this sort of the process of these steps. I'm now in this place where I go, I can't do it on my own. I've tried. I need help. And that was the, the really the first step of trying to have an understanding of, of really just the spirituality or a higher power. And this was before I would say that um, for, for long before I identify as being a Christian and, and a follower of Jesus. But um, and that doesn't even really matter. This was my first connection to an understanding and a willingness to say, man, I'm this little and I have no power and I need help. Right. To overcome this, I need help. And so uh, we move further down the steps. It clearly describes and outlines a process for you to take a personal inventory, right? Take a, a very clear inventory of yourself, your, your wrongdoings, your behaviors, your relationships, your resentments. All these things are a very clear process for how to, how to sort of catalog that stuff. And then there's a really healing part of the steps where you share that, you know, you share that with God and another human being. And um, extremely unbelievable process, right? Humbling, challenging, emotional, um, but very cleansing, right? To be able to sort of release this, this personal inventory. And then as we move on to the steps, it, we transition to fixing my, my wrongs, right? Going around and making amends to the people that I owed money to, to the people that I lied, cheat, and stole from. The people who's, who I just hurt. Luckily, I didn't have a lot of financial amends because I didn't steal from people. I didn't, you know, there were a few little things that I owed money for something, nothing crazy. Um, but, but a lot of my amends were because of things that my behaviors had hurt them emotionally. My mother, my father, uh, my grandfather even, um, you know, past relationships, friends, right, that I had, had burned or, or had hurt um, emotionally. And so you're going through this process of now I'm, I'm fixing and repairing all of these issues, right? I'm sitting down with my mom and saying, mom, here's, here's all the stuff and here's all the ways that I, I hurt you. And I know that I can't fix all these things here today, but I just want you to know I'm willing to do whatever it takes to prove to you um, that this isn't the person that I am today and I love you dearly. And is there anything that I can do right now to make any of this right with you. Wow. Right. And so going through that process and then ending, you know, the, the 12 steps end with carrying the message to another human being. Right. So just sharing my experience, this, what I'm doing with you guys right now in some ways might get to someone that might minister to them in, in a way that would be, would be beneficial. So this to me is yeah. 12 step work of sharing, sharing my message. So, the reason I say that is because the people that I interacted with out of recovery and as I came back home, um, clearly they were looking at a different person, mm, right? Wow. They weren't looking at the same guy that left, you know, broken and damaged. They were looking at a man that could now look the world in the eye and feel good about the things that he'd done with the help of Christ and the help of a higher power and the help of being you know, asking for help and doing what was asked of me and hitting my knees every night and praying like it was clear to them, my friends and family that, wow, this is a different dude. Like, who is this guy? Yeah. 
Wow. And so, you know, look, I, I think that um, at the time that I came home, I came home. Uh, first, I actually went to San Francisco. I got a small little job. The guy that actually owned those clothing stores in L.A. owned two stores in San Francisco on Union Street. And so he asked if I would manage those stores. So I moved back home or moved to San Francisco and I lived there for, for two and a half years. So I didn't come, by the time I came back to Sacramento, I was three or four years, you know, clean and sober. And, uh, and, and I'd worked through, right. A lot of the things that I just mentioned to you, right. Like I had navigated and I wasn't just a guy that was coming back and had stopped drinking. Right. Mm -hmm. I had, done a lot of work right? right like a lot of work um in order in order to get there and so um i, I it's a long way to answer your question but i felt like it was right no that's perfect that's no that's good. great that was a great way to answer my question um oh, question I, have you written have you written your autobiography yet yeah <laughs> that's a good question have you written a book yet because you need to no I, no i haven't and I would really like to, and not for any selfish reasons, truly. I think that um, I mentioned to you earlier that, you know, I walked into that treatment center to uh, to learn how to not drink, right? Or learn how to drink like a normal person. And when mm -hmm. I said I got so much more, um, if I could explain to you in words um, the number of people over my 12 years or almost 12 years that I have had conversations with or have reached out to me and asked me for help um, because of my experience and my story, that has been probably some of the most fulfilling work that I can even explain to you. Like, like my mom, so my mom's a hairdresser. Um, hairdressers love to gossip and I can't tell you how many um, children right? Adult children of her clients who have called me because they, there's a video. I don't know if you've seen this video, but there's a video. I think it was played at Capitol. Um, it was actually before I was married and it was a little bit about my story being homeless. A, a girl that used to work at Capitol did this videography, you know, this video thing of me. And um, my mom would share this video, you know, with a client whose child was struggling with alcoholism and addiction. And they'd share my video and then these kids would call me and just be like, dude, I watched your video. Like, I don't know. I don't even know what to say, but like it helped me. And, you know, so like that, that type of stuff is stuff that I could have never planned for um, that has been so valuable. So look, maybe at some point, um, maybe there will be a biography. I don't know. Who knows? I hope so. Or at the very least, uh, a movie with Justin Bieber, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to happen for sure. We brought that full circle. We brought that full circle. See? That's yeah. right. That's right. Hey, so this is kind of a, this is kind of an out of order question, but something that you said, I think ties in. So this is kind of a two part question. One, I want to hear a little bit of the story behind uh, why and when you started title boxing. Um, but to go along with that, if anybody follows title boxing or if maybe someone has been to title boxing, I've, I've personally never been, but I've been following you guys for a while and it's very, very clear. We've had uh, like Jay's Angelo and, and Kimberly Ruby on this podcast before. It's very clear that you guys have a really tight community. And so based on everything that you went through, everything that you've done throughout your entire life, it seems as though 
that idea of community is really important to you. And I think like you just said briefly, how your story has impacted so many people. And I'm sure that's, that kind of plays a part of why that community is so tight. Cause I'm sure other people have crazy stories or interesting stories that they're bringing to the table too. So, um, it's kind of a long-winded question, but I guess, you know, how and when did title boxing start and how important is that, that community that you guys have created? Oh, great question. Listen, I think that if I had to state this very simply, um, and, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, but like energies attract each other and the people that I have come into contact with in, in my sober life, um, are, I believe, you know, one, I think there's something that you could say that like God puts people in our lives for a reason. Um, but I also think there's this idea and, you know, if you listen to any big speaker or writer, you know, the Jim Collins, the Ray Dalio's, a lot of these guys that talk about leading teams and managing people and creating culture. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's this idea that, um, you know, you want to surround yourself. I mean, you've heard this a million times, right? You want to surround yourself with people that, that you want to be like and that you respect and that you, um, you know, I remember this at a very simple level. There's a thing in Alcoholics Anonymous called a sponsor. A sponsor is someone who is simply there to guide you through the steps. Like this is someone that, yes, that you trust, but at the end of the day, they're not there to be your friend. There's someone to guide you through the literature and to explain to you how to complete the steps so that you can do it with someone else. Right. And you can keep this thing going. This thing's been going almost a hundred years. Right. So when you think about that, Alcoholics Anonymous has survived and flourished. If you read some of the early stuff about how this program has exploded across the world, it's because we carry the message to the next person. So anyway, that long way of saying that um, title boxing club started because my wife and I, um, we're traveling to Mexico and I had a work trip. Uh, a customer of ours was having an event in Mexico. And so we were flying to Cancun. Long story short, our flight out of Sacramento at nine o'clock got delayed, which put us in Salt Lake City about an hour late. And so we missed the only flight out of Salt Lake City that would have got us into Cancun that day. So we were upset, right? We missed a whole day in Mexico and we were stuck in Salt Lake City and we got a hotel voucher and we didn't even have any of our luggage because our luggage was on its way. So we had the clothes we were wearing, a hotel voucher. And um, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, what do you, you want to do? And we're like, let's go get a workout in. Like, let's go work out. Let's, uh, let's go to the hotel. We'll get some dinner. We'll sleep. And then we'll fly out in the morning. And so um, we got on our phone and found this, uh, this boxing club. And... Um, you know, long story short, we just, we, I, I fell in love with the workout and we had been doing, Jennifer and I had a, a, a personal coach that was boxing with us early in the mornings. And I had been training with him for a little while before we found this concept. Um, but really just, I loved, um, as an athlete, I think there's this, uh, you know, the competitive nature where we want to do something difficult and challenging and and, uh, and so I felt uh, boxing was the first thing that I felt really, really challenged at in a long time. And so I got addicted. I was all in. So after this, like I'm getting home, I'm like, babe, we're going to open a boxing gym. 
And she's like, you're nuts. We're not going <laughs> to open a boxing gym. And, uh, and so, you know, I think she realized when I kept bringing it up that like, I wasn't letting it go. And so, um, you know, that was this sort of history. We agreed that one of the things that, you know, to speak to your community point, um, you know, there's about 58 gyms in a five mile radius of the Midtown area. And that's a lot, mm-hmm. right? So the, you know, my wife is a visionary. She's super smart. She's got a, a crazy marketing brain. And, you know, we understood and we sat down together and said, listen, we want this place to be um, about people. If, if in order for this gym to be successful, one, people have to want to come here, right? It needs right. to be more than just a workout. People have to want and, and feel a need to be there and to come. And how do we do that, right? Well, we do that. I like to think of Title Boxing Club as a church. Um, I know that sounds weird, but um, doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your shape, your size, your age, your strength, your skill level. You can come into our facility and you can feel welcomed and you can feel loved and you can feel empowered and you cool. can have an unbelievable workout and you can leave with a huge smile on your face. And, and so that was title was born on that. That was the foundation. We said from the very beginning, you know, we actually had our church family come over and pray in they need to feel respected. And so that's been how our whole culture has been created. We hired people that, that carried those same values and we developed people that, that showed that that was what they were about too. And, and I think you're right. We have a, we have a community that's, it's pretty amazing. It really is. It's, it's something I've never seen before anywhere else, truly. And it's, and it's, I don't not taking credit. Like, I'm not. I'm just saying it is it is something that everybody, everybody on our team, Jace has been a critical part of our team. Um, everybody that we've hired and has poured into that club has um, has has changed it. And I think I think God has put his favor on it. Yeah, that's it's super dope man, to follow. I wish I've told my wife this multiple times. I wish I lived closer. Because I'd be there for sure. It's it's a real bummer. So if you ever open anything else, uh, just make it close to my house. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> but yeah, that you know, anything can happen, my friend. All right, I like that. I like it. But yeah, no, it's it's very obvious, man. That the people that go there love it, and it's not just because they enjoy boxing. It's not just because they enjoy getting in better shape. It's it's uh, it's it's unique. I'll say that it's definitely a unique environment, and so. Um, yeah, really, really amazing. Well, I think this is kind of a, you know, a transition kind of, I guess, combining what you're doing right now and this, this whole pandemic with everything that you went through throughout your entire life. Like you're kind of uniquely built to stay resilient through these times, right? It's like, oh, pandemic. Oh, sure. This is not the worst thing that's happened in life. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, I mean, that- look, the good news is, is I can, I can almost say that about any challenge I'm faced right. with, right? Like, which yeah. is, which is just wild. It's, um, it is wild. You know, we have, um, you know, we have leveraged our community in a really positive way. I think, 
we had a, a pretty cool, you know, positive outpouring of members that really wanted to support us through the tough time when we had to close. And so just so grateful for that community that said, Hey, listen, we, we want to see you through this. We want you to get to the other end of this thing. We want you to still be open. Um, you know, there was only so long we, you know, at the beginning of this thing, we're thinking two weeks, right. And then right. we're thinking three weeks and then we're thinking five weeks and then we're thinking, okay. So by the time, you know, what happened after, as we approached the second month, um, I felt my wife and I both felt um, uneasy in our spirit about taking money or people paying for dues mm-hmm. when we weren't providing a service. So one month, you know, it was like, okay, well, a lot of people get billed partially. So some people got a half month, some people got billed. We thought we were going to reopen. So it was kind of like, okay, you know, one month we were we were gracious and gratitude. I ordered a ton of gift cards. I sent people out thank you cards. And my wife and I and my team, we hand wrote thank you cards. Um, but as we got in, as we were approaching that second month, um, we we just, we, we, we said, we're not gonna, we paused all of our billing. We turned everybody's accounts off. We held everybody. Yeah. And we just said, we don't feel right about that. Um, and we had people reach out to us and say, no, like, I'm working, like I'm still working, keep charging me. Wow. And we, uh, we just, we didn't do it. So, um, so, you know, look, that was cool. Um, that was a critical way that we survived. And then, you know, we had the ability to open up outside and I don't know if you saw what I did outside, but my team, my wife and I, we, yeah, we modified and created an outdoor space. We bought a heavy bag stand outside. I bought a bunch of kettlebells and slam balls and and sandbags and we were leading really cool strength and conditioning and boxing style workouts outside and then the fires came right so uh, then yeah. you know then it's the air quality is so bad well now we can't there's no way right there's no way we can work out outside so you know it's it's been um it's been a challenge but man we are so blessed and we've been so lucky um throughout this process and uh, but yeah, I, I think I am maybe uniquely built to be a little more resilient through this stuff. Um, it's been an amazing blessing too to be able to. And we have, man, we there's so much we haven't gotten into. We haven't gotten into my son, and we haven't gotten into really my life, my career today, um, outside of title because title's really just a hobby. So yeah, um, I, I don't know how much time you have or if there's anything. I I, I can keep going if you guys want. It's up to you. Well, we always want to be respectful of our guest times, but man, if you want to, if you want to share, we're, we're here to listen. This has been great. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, the only thing I think I want to add, um, is, you know, and you mentioned some of these like guys that maybe we have connections with through capital is, you know, part of one of the, the challenging things to, um, to think about when you're you're getting sober, or you have an issue that you're trying to be rid of is the fear of what's life's going to look like without that thing, right? Mm-hmm. If I, you know, every, and, it's, and especially something as sort of normal for people as drinking, right? It is such a social and common thing to have a glass of wine or go out and have a beer and all these things. So I think that was really a difficult thing. And, and so you know, it was interesting when I first met my wife and we started dating each other. Um, one was a couple things. She didn't drink. 
and it was totally normal to her that she didn't drink. And so f- that was really, really cool for me to see someone that doesn't drink and is totally normal and, <laughs> and it doesn't bother them and they have no desire to drink. And so I was like, all right, well, this is new. I didn't know people like you even existed. Um, <laughs> and like, for real, I, I did not know that you existed. And then, um, and then at the same time was, okay, well, how am I going to find a group of friends and a group of guys that I, I enjoy and that I respect um, that have what I want in terms of careers and, and being parents, being married, right? Um, what, is a, what does a good father look like? All these things. And, you know, it was so cool that I actually asked Jen to take me to Capitol um, because I knew that she'd gone there. She'd gone to school there. And I said, you know, one, I want, I, I've never really been to church. Will you take me to church? And, um, and she took me and, uh, and she introduced me to like a group of guys that were cool and they were, <laughs> they were, they were, they were healthy and they, pl- they loved basketball and they loved other sports and they loved Jesus. And I was like, I, that, all right. Like, I didn't even know, like, again, another thing that I didn't even know existed. And so, um, you know, that was a, the start of something really cool, um, eye-opening for me, because the people that I ran with didn't, they didn't love Jesus. Um, drinking and drug use was a normal thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so this was, this was a really cool eye-opening experience for me. So, you know, for youth that are out there listening, like, you know, blacking out every weekend is not normal, right? Like, it's just not, right? Drinking to excess in any capacity is not normal. Um, and so, but I needed to see that. I needed to hear that because it was so normal to me. And um, and so, you know, anyway, that that was really interesting. So, um, you know, so fast, fast forward to today, um, I've been so blessed and I've met some people along the way that have really helped me and, um, and have given me great advice. And I think, you know, God has blessed me in many ways, but, um, so title started two and a half years ago, um, with a lot of help, you know, my wife and, and, and many others that helped us get title started. And, uh, but you know, my main job uh, is actually, I'm the vice president of a, a pretty good sized auto parts company. And I've been at that company now 10 years. And um, so we've got 200 locations across the United States. And, um, you know, I've got a a bunch of employees and, and, and manage a team and, and none of that, none of that would be possible um, if I hadn't taken the steps that I'd taken to, you know, the 12 steps that I mentioned, right? Like all of those things, um, that let me, I promise you, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a cult. Um, it's in fact, I think that regardless of who you are and what your issues are, I think the 12 steps would be a valuable process for any human being to go through, Interesting. um, no matter who you are. And, um, it's been completely, completely life-changing for me. So, um, you know, I think sobriety, spirituality has transitioned into having a relationship with God. And uh, I've been so blessed, man. I really have. I've, I've been so blessed. And um, and I don't know if you know this, but, uh, you know, my wife and I had the privilege of adopting 
um, our son last July on the 26th, two days before my birthday. And this is really, really unbelievable. Um, If you ever had a doubt in in God, um, this experience, I mean, would change your mind. We, um, my wife and I have been trying to have kids for a long time and we, we had all the tests and there's nothing wrong with us physically. We're, we're very healthy. Everything was working properly. Uh, we just, you know, several years, right. And we, um, we hadn't gotten pregnant. And so my wife and I had always talked about a willingness to adopt and foster, or, you know, we wanted to be parents. We just, we both wanted to be parents and we were cool with that. And so you know, several years of us going by not getting pregnant. I think I, I started the conversation with Jen and I said, Hey, we should just start the process, right? Cause it's going to take time. We should, we should get approved to be foster parents. We should just, we should start the process. And so Jen had, you know, communicated that to her mom and um, anyway, long story short, uh, her mom calls like probably two weeks later and she says, Jen, I'm, I'm going to look at a baby. And we were like, what do you mean you're going to look at a baby? And she said, well, I just, I got this call from a social worker and um, you know, they've got this, they've got this baby that's at the hospital and no one, no one can take this baby. Hmm. And, um, and he's got, he's got, you know, he's got broken arms and, um, and uh, you know, no one, no one can take him home. So, so she goes and she said that, you know, when she got there and she looked over at him um, that he locked eyes with her and there was like just an unbelievable, like she knew she had to take this child home. Wow. And so, um, he was just seven months, seven months old at that time. He's about 14 pounds. Um, just a really, really little guy. He was premature. Hmm. His mom, you know, used methamphetamine throughout her entire pregnancy. And, um, so, Jen's mom had already was already an approved foster parent. So, so she was able to take him into the home while Jen and I were going through, you know, and, and doing our, our paperwork and getting ready and, and all that stuff. So, you know, it was a crazy two and a half year journey of, you know, in the early times we thought we were going to lose him because they were going to place him with a family member or, or the father was coming back into the picture or something was happening. And, you know, there were a couple of times where we thought, um, he was going to lose him. But once Jen and I got approved, um, then we were able to transition Isaiah into our home. And uh, then we were able to finalize his adoption last July, um, which was really just unheard of, all the things that we had to go through. And you guys, this little guy, uh, I've never, ever, ever in my life have I been more in love with anything. Um, it is the most unbelievable relationship uh, that I could have never imagined. I, I could have never imagined. Um, so, man, I'm just so freaking blessed. It's crazy. Wow. Uh, that's, um, that's how, really cool. I don't know if I missed it. How old is he now again? Oh, man, he'll be four in December. Wow. That's that cool. That is so, so cool. That's, um, and he, that's pretty amazing. He's the He's the funniest, sweetest, most precious guy ever. You guys would fall in love with him. He's, he's amazing. Hopefully you get to meet him at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, hope so. I hope so. Um, yeah. 
Well, hey, man, we want to be respectful, but I do have just two questions. Uh, Deb, I'll save the last question for you. I'll let you ask that last question. But man, just, you know, you explain what you just said about, you know, how much you love your son and and all the things you went through. Like, I'm just curious. This might be a weird question. I'm, I'm going to ask. I've never asked anybody this question. But when you, when you do, like, when you wake up in the morning, like, just how grateful are you? Like, when, as soon as your eyes open up, like, that's got to be, I don't know, is that, is that a weird question? It's got to be an amazing feeling. No, it's, it's not a weird question. And actually, you know, if you remember how I woke up feeling prior to getting where I am today yeah it was just sheer fear and panic and anxiety and oh my god the world is falling down and I'm never going to recover from this I'm never gonna you know the the greatest thing I I remember being in treatment thinking you know what if I just have a little small life and a small job and like like I, I thought I think that'll be okay you know like just maybe someone will love me at some point like whatever but I just want a small little job and a little place to call my own. And holy moly, what I have is unbelievable. And I think that, you know, prayer is one of the things that I've been consistent with for 12 years. I mean, I hit my knees every night and just sort of recap the day. And, and it's a, it's a moment to even in challenging days to be able to reflect and, and put that gratitude out. And man, I really believe and that energy and, you know, and, and giving credit where credit is due and acknowledging the things that I have and how I got here. And, and uh, look, it hasn't been, I'm not some crazy miraculous person that has like, whatever, super smart or super talented, or I fought through and been resilient. Like, no man, I've been helped along the way. I've been very blessed. And, um, you know, not to say I haven't worked hard, but like, you know, it's just, it's an insane, it's an insanely powerful feeling of gratitude. It's not a weird question. Perfect. And it's no, good to remind. Awesome. And listen, there are times when um, my wife does a great job of reminding me when I'm being a little poopy pants about something, <laughs> you know, to yeah. just say like, hey, let's just quickly recap, like all the things that you want to you want to just run through the things and then get out of your poopy pants and we can start over that's awesome (laughs) i love that that's great wow no no that's awesome and you should definitely be proud of yourself for all the things you've overcome um and this last question kind of ties into it um we ask all of our guests this question just just because this is the show is called the character you know combine podcast but um, I'm especially interested in your answer just because yeah, I feel too. like you've d- the word character. Uh, my question is, I'm going to ask you what, what is, um, what does it mean to you? And like, how do you define it and why, like, why is it important to you? Cause I feel like that's something that you've had to develop like over and over again, back and forth over time throughout your life. So what does character mean to you and why is it important? Man, awesome question and so fitting. Uh, surprisingly, um, I hadn't expected this question, although I probably should have. This is the Character Combine <laughs> podcast. I should have been prepared. But listen, the thing that comes immediately to mind is there's a, there's a part in our literature um, that talks about um, as man, and when I say man, I mean woman too, right? I just mean as humans. Um 
you know, at least for me, at the end of the day, all I really wanted was the ability to look the world in the eye. Mm. And um, I lived a, lo a, a long section of my life unable to do that. Mm. And, and that was because decisions that I made, things that I was putting into my body, things that I was saying to people, things that I was doing, how I was spending my time, the words that I used, the music that I listened to. Like when you think about all of the things that go into creating a feeling of self-esteem and, um, and developing character, I wasn't doing any of those things. I, there was nothing, right? And so um, the, the very simple definition for me of character um, is how I know how do I know if I'm acting in good character or if I'm, um, if I'm um, living by the character that, that I want to live by or that I expect of myself is just that ability to look the world in the eye. And, and so, you know, I don't know. That's just the, really the first thing that came to my heart and my mind was to me, character is being able to look another man or woman in the eye and have an honest conversation about whatever um, about anything. And I'm not perfect. Um, I certainly make mistakes. Um, mistakes are okay. Right. It's how we learn. But, um, but to me that, um, that has been so important. And I think, uh, has been a solid part of my foundation and has helped me to stay clean and sober. Um, because for me, the, the disease is, is progressive and it's sneaky and it's small and little small behaviors that sort of snowball, like, and this is going to sound stupid guys, but even things as simple as like not bringing the shopping cart back to the shopping cart barn, right? Like pushing it off to the curb. Like these are small little things that add up, like, you know, littering, letting some trash fall out of my car onto the ground and not picking it up. Like that type of stuff builds up and builds up. And eventually I'm now making decisions to, or I'm thinking about going to the liquor store or wh whatever. I'm, I'm going to extremes, but you get the idea. I'm, I'm thinking about behaviors that aren't um, of the character that, that I want to be. So anyway, so to me, it's, it's being able to look the world in the eye and feel good about who I am. Amazing. Nice. I love it. That's, that's great. a great, that's a great definition yeah. of it. Uh, so, Hey man, where can, uh, where can people follow you title boxing, social media, all that stuff. Yeah. So look, my Instagram is, uh, Blake.Kidwell, K-I-D-W-E-L-L. Um, title boxing ice blocks is the Instagram page to our business. In fact, actually, Josh, give you guys a shout out or have you guys, um, consider this. We do an event. Um, last year we actually did it two times. Well, we've done it three times in the, the, the history of our business and it's an unbelievable event. It's called Friday night lights. Oh, that's right. I don't it's know if up, you right? saw the video. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you saw the video on the Instagram, but it's an unbelievable event. We have six, seven, eight trainers. We've got all of these different speed and agility stations, strength stations. Um, and we basically ran out of football field. And uh, I ran it out. I've done it at Capital Christian three times. Um, we did nice. not get capital for this time, but you do have pay uh, uh, information on how to register. It's just $20 for non-members. Um, so really inexpensive. We're going to have a guy cooking tacos. We got loud music. Nice. Um, it's going to be an unbelievable time. So, 
Um, I think we have maybe 10 or 15 tickets left. We sell about 80 to 100. Actually, most of them are free, right? Because we do it for our members for free. Sure. Um, but if, if anybody does want to grab a spot or grab a ticket, um, you can find that information uh, on our Instagram page. Okay. And what's the, what's the date for that one? Oh, man. It's next Friday. It is. Yeah. What's next Friday, man? The 6th? So, November 6th. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. That'll be perfect. November so 6th. anybody who's listening, this episode, so we're recording on the 27th. This episode will drop on Wednesday, November 4th. So you have a, from when you're hearing this right now, you have a couple of days. Hopefully it's not too late, but we'll blast that out there anyways and make sure they get some, yeah. uh, a little bit of a heads up. That's perfect timing. Yeah, for sure. Cool, cool, cool. Deb, where can they follow us? You guys can follow us on Twitter at Sports Character, Instagram at Character Combine. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Perfect. Yeah. Like, man, this was, I'll say this, like I said at the top of this episode, it took us a little while to finally get this uh, thing scheduled, but it was definitely, definitely worth the wait, man. You had some incredible things to say, and uh, we do appreciate you just letting us into your life a little bit and all of our listeners into your life, man. We definitely appreciate it and uh, appreciate all the great work you're doing. Yeah. Well, 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 thank you guys both. I hope it was something of value to someone and um, worthwhile way to spend an hour and a half with you guys. So I appreciate it. And if there's anything y- you ever need or anything that anyone you want me to talk to or anything you have questions about, you can reach out to me anytime. We appreciate awesome. it. Man. We appreciate Thanks. it. Hey, stay, uh, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you so much. All right, well, you guys, see you guys.